Now, there's a woman named Gladys Allward who was a missionary to China. And she began accumulating orphans whom she evangelized and nurtured. Ninepence came from the town of Shanxi. She was the first child that was adopted by Gladys Allward. She was a tiny abandoned girl she'd purchased for that amount of money. She was eventually adopted and nearly a hundred other children from the town of Shanxi adopted by Gladys. Then in 1940, the Japanese invaded China and began a bloody westward slaughter. And Gladys was counseled to quickly flee for her life, but she couldn't just leave the children there to be mowed down and slaughtered and abused. So Gladys attempted the unthinkable. She set out with her 94 needy and noisy children with enemy troops right on her heels on a dangerous trek across the mountains and across the Yellow River into the safety beyond the Siam border. And astonishingly, with God's almighty guidance and protection, they made it alive on that adventure. Now, times of great distress have often been the occasion of great faith. That was true for Gladys Allward in the 1940s in China, It was true for Jonathan in 1040-ish B.C. in Israel. It was true with our church, Harbor Church, when we planted our church back in 1993 in Holland, Michigan. And it's also true for you in Barbados as you're beginning a great project here in planting a church for the glory of God. I want to consider this passage, really 1 Samuel 14, verse 23 under five main headings. There are implications not just for Gladys Allward and her adventure, but also for you here in Barbados in your adventure. Five main heads of exposition. We'll see if we have time for four lines of application. The first line of exposition is fearful immobility. Fearful immobility. That's found in verses 2 and verse 3 in the passage that I read. Let's go back and get into the sandals of the ancients. Israel at this time was down for the count and oppressed and afraid. You see, their notorious enemies, the Philistines, they were terrorizing Israel again. Israel here was outnumbered. Chapter 13, verse 5, tells us that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and as many infantry as the sands on the seashore. Saul's forces were leaking away, going AWOL. They were hiding themselves, it says in chapter 13, verse 6, in caves and thickets and pits. And now there were only 600 Israel fighters left, it says in 1315. They were trembling and they were poorly armed. In fact, it says in 1319 that there were no blacksmith in Israel. In other words, no weaponry to forge swords. In fact, there are only two swords in the Israeli army. One owned by Jonathan, one owned by his dad, Saul. All Israel had to fight with were farm implements, like maybe shovels and axes and sickles and goads. 
It's kind of the modern counterpart of state-of-the-art tanks and heavy mortar artillery facing off against John Deere tractors and Home Depot pitchforks. It wasn't an even battle. The leadership of Israel, we see, oh, they were hunkered down near Gibeah, it says. Look at 14.2 of your passage. It says, Saul was under the pomegranate tree. Pomegranate was a luxurious fruit. Youngblood tells us that Saul is depicted as sitting here in ease and in timidity. See, Saul was kind of pouting. He was. Remember how Saul had disobeyed God in the 13th chapter? He went off and sacrificed when he shouldn't have. And so the Lord had abandoned him and would take away the kingdom from him. So Saul here is despondent. He is reeling from rejection. He's paralyzed, unable to act. He's pathetically passive, failing to lead, pouting. Interesting how Saul had lost his religious leader, Samuel, and now we see the religious leader is Ahijah, 14.3, who was the son of Eli, who was wearing the ephod. Now this is a real sour note reminding us that the that the old, spiritually bankrupt regime of dead formalism was ruling in Israel at this time. In fact, there's mention here of Ichabod, who was the uncle of Ahijah. You know what Ichabod means? That's right. The glory of the Lord has departed. That's the way it was for Israel. Saul was their king. The glory of the Lord had departed. And even we see how Saul, in verse 18, says, bring me the ark. That harkens back to the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel 14, when the ark was used as a rabbit's foot, thinking it would give us luck in battle. Not a very spiritual scene here. The glory of the Lord has departed. Saul is but a shell of a king. He's characterized under the pomegranate tree as having indecision. And so Saul here is sitting, he's fretting, he's fearful, and that fear is contagious. Back in Michigan right now, there's an influenza A that's going through Michigan. I don't think I brought it here. But people are getting fevered up there in Michigan. And we see here that the 600 of the Israel fighters were all fevered with a sense of fear, and their teeth were chattering. So that's what I mean by fearful immobility in verses 2 and 3. Come on with me secondly of our five main headings to daring activity. Daring activity, that's in verse 1 and then 4 through 6a. Yeah, it's true that 598 of them were fearful and fevered with clattering teeth. But in the narrative, there are two men who are still cool. And they have a set jaw. And that's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Did you see as I read that these two have a spark of bull daring in them? And then that daring is, is fanned into a flame by faith. Look what it says in verse 1. Jonathan says this. Come to his armor bearer, he says. Let's cross over to the Philistines on yonder side. Then it says, but he didn't tell his father. Wonder why? Because there was a spark of daring courage 
And to be in contact with pessimistic Saul would have doused and poured a bucket of water on that. I'm not telling my dad about this idea. Come, let us cross over. So Jonathan, he was a man of a different spirit than his dad. He was a man who already had a degree of success. Look at 13.4 of the previous chapter. He had already assaulted a garrison and had won victory. You see, Jonathan wasn't like his dad. He wasn't a despondent sinner. He wasn't a puddle blum. No, instead, Jonathan was a... Isn't there a Jonathan in this church? Yeah. He was an optimistic doer, that Jonathan. He would all to have a Jonathan in our church. He was instead a daring David. It says that Jonathan and the armor bearer slipped away unnoticed. And there was a geographical challenge that they were facing. It's described there how uh, there is a, what's called the Wadi Suena was in a plain. And there were two cliffs. One cliff is called Old Thorny. And the other cliff over there is called Old Slippery. And Jonathan and his armor bearer were up on Old Thorny, and they looked down in the valley, which would be an open area, and there the garrison of the Philistines was up on Old Slippery. And this would be a real geographical difficulty to cross over, to go from that north side to that south side. And we see that the only way would be to walk across the plain and be totally exposed to the enemy, then climb up old slippery hands and feet. Now, if you're a military man, that's a foolish, impossible move to make militarily. But that's the very thing that Jonathan suggests. 6a, come now, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. There was an intimidating geographical obstacle staring at them. How can you scale old slippery it's unscalable, but Jonathan's mindset was, we can find a way. I love find a way kind of a personality. Dale Davis, the commentator, says this, the circumstances didn't quite stimulate optimism, but this isn't optimism, this is faith. Some people are natural optimists, but they don't know any better. But faith can arise even when no reason exists for optimism. Kind of like when David was there in the valley of Elah, staring up the nostrils of the giant Goliath who was taunting him. Now that's one big obstacle. Didn't make any difference to the daring David. David had learned that when God was with him, he could slay the bear. He could slay the lion. And I can take down, with the help of God, this giant as well, a man of faith. See, humanly speaking, the plan of Jonathan was utterly impossible. Come on, climb hands and feet alone, above, onto old slippery. Come on. If his dad was there, he'd have said, Jonathan, a single stone rolled down by them could crush you in the valley below. But Jonathan's response was, Let's roll. Let's do it. Remember that? Back 2001, Flight 43, 9-11. There was a, a terrorist in front of the fuselage of the airplane. A handful of terrorists. And then there were these guys led by Todd Beamer. These passengers in the back, and they realized by cell phone, this plane is going down somewhere. 
and it was headed for either the Capitol building or the White House. And they thought, we can't just sit here and do nothing. And what did Todd Beaver say in the back of the fuselage? Let's roll. That's what Jonathan said to, to the armor bear. This is a crucial hour in the history of Israel. I know things look bad, but let's, let's roll. Man of faith. And so this is, this is what happens when we have an individual who has a mind of faith and a purpose for good. Gladys Allward in China says, we can't just sit here. And sort of the 94 children, she looked at him and said, Let's rule. That's what David said to the armor bearer. Let's rule. And so we see this is bold faith in God. This is daring activity. So we've seen fearful immobility, daring activity. Come on with me now thirdly to admitted uncertainty. That's in 6B. Look at that. Admitted uncertainty. Look what Jonathan says to his armor bearer. He says, Perhaps, perhaps the Lord will work for us. You see, Jonathan's faith is not certain about the outcome. The Hebrew word is avlai, which means perhaps. If you have a King James, it may say peradventure. Or your translation, may it may be. One commentator named Heaney says this, Jonathan isn't certain about this, but he's willing to risk his life on this bold perhaps. You see, the humbling reality is we don't always know what God will do. Whether he will bless a plan or blight a plan. One commentator says this, perhaps acknowledges our ignorance. Now, I know there are some who claim they know exactly what God will do. My wife has been diagnosed with cancer. The doctor says she will die within a year. I know that God is going to save her and restore her and heal her. That may sound like bold, wise faith, but that's really not necessarily scriptural. Oftentimes, it's better to respond, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will heal her. One commentator says this, there is more true faith in Jonathan's perhaps than in the so-called faith talk. Perhaps is more humble, more honest, more biblical. But we see here that Jonathan's faith is more than merely humble. It's also, listen to me now, it's also just downright adventuresome. Listen to what Dale Davis says. This is the imagination of faith. His clear conviction about God produces a great expectation of God. There's an old commentator named Blake who says this, this is a project of unprecedented daring that came into his mind. He had a kindred, he had a great relationship with David, didn't he? No, the two of them are real kindred spirits. They were two peas in a paw. You see, this idea of perhaps the Lord will work, this daring faith, such are the ponderings of a man or of a woman who knows God. I think it was Psalm 18 how David says this, For by thee, O Lord, again, by thee, I can run against a troop. And by thee, O Lord, 
I can leap over a wall. You see, sometimes God kindles ideas in our hearts, just daring designs to attempt something great. You know what? It's often very godly and holy to fan into a flame those daring plans by a perhaps kind of a mindset instead of dousing them by a puddle-glum pessimism. I can be puddle-glum and pessimism at times. I've been an elder for 28 years at Harvard Church, and there were times when I played the puddle-glum, pessimistic, the chicken little, sky is falling, naysayer. Blakey says this, Don't stifle such daring things and notions under the idea that you are too weak to bring anything out of it. The truth of the matter is, you are too weak. So am I. But God is not. What does it say in Philippians 4? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the mindset of the Apostle. Admitted uncertainty. Daring activity. Fearful immobility. But fourthly, consider with me sovereign ability. That's 6C. Look there, 6C. Sovereign ability. Sovereign ability. For it says, For the Lord is not restrained or hindered to save by many or by few. The odds are 2 against 20 up old slippery and then the sands of the seashore infantry behind them. But statistics don't matter with God. God doesn't need favorable circumstances. One commentator says, Our being outnumbered and underarmed and helpless is no hindrance to him whatsoever. Rather, it's just the kind of a situation God delights to work in. Bad circumstances. This is ideal for God to bear his right arm of power. Remember when Israel was fighting against the global military chaplain champions, which would be the military force of Egypt, and they were pushed up against the Red Sea? This is doom written all over this drama. But we see that the Lord is now poised with circumstances that enable him to glorify his name, to pull his hand out of his robe, and the Red Sea Parts. There's a baseball. Do you do baseball in Barbados? Okay, but let me tell you a story about baseball anyway. <laughs> Detroit Tigers, World Series, 1984. We're down by two runs. Three men on base. Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson was a player. He loved to have a stick in his hand at a very dire, dark moment. God is a lot like Kurt, he jacked the home run, by the way, in the World Series. And likewise, God is Kurt Gibson-like in that sense. When the moment is dark, God loves to bear his hand. So we see the stage here is set, and the, the Lord is going to work. See, when, when someone utters a daring, perhaps the Lord will, this isn't going to work. There will always be naysayers, won't there? In fact, I can remember this. I think of you all here. You're in a building, and you're renting it at this time. I don't know how things work out, but we were in a situation where we were, we were, we were renting a gymnasium. It was really difficult. There was a pastor named Ted Christman who came, and he said, 
this is a nice rental situation that you have, he says, but someday, perhaps, he said, the Lord is going to get you a building. Now, we had $30,000 saved up at that time. You can't buy anything for $30,000. Maybe an outhouse you can buy for $30,000. But within months of Ted Christmas being there, we had about, the next week, we had a prayer meeting. And we prayed, Lord, it was a day of prayer and fasting. And in a few months, we had the opening of a building that was worth probably $2.5 million. And we paid $150,000 for that building. Point is, the circumstances were against, but the Lord pulled his hand out of his robe, perhaps was fulfilled. One commentator says this, Yes, there are people who say perhaps the Lord won't work, but Heaney, the commentator, says this, but perhaps he will work. And Jonathan is willing to step out in faith and risk his life because, Jonathan was thinking, I'm inclined to think that he will work since he has proven himself to be that kind of a God. What kind of a God do we have? It's a God who bears his right hand and glorifies his name. Uh, sometimes I am the puddle lump pessimist. And sometimes I want 100% certainty of success before I step out. But listen, even the apostles didn't bat 1,000%, did they? 1 Thessalonians 2.18 speaks of Paul seeking to preach the word of God in Asia Minor, but it says, but... The Spirit of God hindered us, or even Satan thwarted us elsewhere. You see, Jonathan didn't sit around under a pomegranate tree waiting for a two or a 20 foot tall angel to come and give him specific marching orders, but instead, Jonathan ventured out on a perhaps and said, Let's roll. You see, that's that theme of sovereign ability. We need to have that in mind. Again, what we are doing as a church here, what we are doing as a man and a woman and a child of God. But lastly, by way of exposition, consider with me remarkable victory. That's verses 7 all the way through 23, really. Jonathan basically said to his armor bearer, let's rule. He said, come on, let's cross over. And the armor bearer says, look there in verse 7, blessed armor bearers. Oh, to be an armor bearer among the people of God. He says this, Here, I am with you. And remember the statement was, Jonathan says, If they say to us, come up to us, that'll be a sign for good. So verse 11 says that Jonathan, the armor bearer, revealed themselves. And we see the Philistines say, Behold, the Hebrews have come out of their holes. You see, these are prophetic farmers. They're mocking them. And they said from on the top of Old Slippery, you come up here and we'll teach you a thing. Or true is what they said. You see, the world ever scorns men of faith. Those Philistines probably didn't think that these men could or would climb Old Slippery. So they, looking down from the summit, went back to their cigars and to their blackjack game around the fire. But we see that Jonathan in the armor bearer, verse 13 says, hands and feet having crossed the open plain, they began to climb old slippery. You see, 
when it got to the top of Old Slippery, Jonathan and the armor bear, militarily speaking, were in the zone. You know what that means athletically? For a ball player, Steph Curry, Golden State Warriors, sometimes Curry is in the zone. Whatever he throws from 30 feet out, from 35 feet out, it splashes. And that's the way it was. These guys would throw a javelin. They'd shoot an arrow. They'd throw a knife. They'd swing a fist. Splash, splash, splash. To the heart, to the bullseye. Before they knew it, 20 men were dead. 20 less teachers now in Philistia. They were going to teach them a thing or two, were they? And we see here that it says they ventured on God, and God shows up. It says in verse 14, they slaughtered 20 men in half an acre. Verse 15 says that a trembling arose. In fact, it even says the earth quaked. Was that literal or was that figurative? We're not sure. Matthew Henry says this, he who knows the heart knows how to make it tremble. God had turned the tables and the multitude, it says, began to melt away and run away. Those chariots, they became escape wagons. Guys half-dressed with weapons clanking out were hightailing it to the hills. Remarkable victory. As we see that Saul in verse 17, previously under the pomegranate tree, says, there's trembling. What's happening here? He, he gets up from his pouting. And we see that he counts his men. And we see that men are now coming out of the caves and the thickets and the pits. Those who were AWOL, they want to be on the winning side. The Lord delivered a great victory. Symbolizing what it says in Joshua 23.10. I will enable one of you to put to flight a thousand of them. Remarkable victory to the glory of God. So that's our exposition. Now consider with me, with our remaining time, some lines of application. Some lines of application. First, ponder with me, application concerning mission endeavors. Concerning mission endeavors. We're engaged in a battle ourselves, aren't we? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our mindset should be in our endeavors as Christians, individually and corporately, our mindset should be characterized by Jonathan and his armor bearer. Perhaps, huh, perhaps the Lord will work for us. Think with me, at a time in England when few cared about India, William Carey stepped up with a Jonathan let's roll kind of a plan. There was this meeting of the Baptist Association of Nottingham in May of 1792. And we see that Jonathan-like, William Carey stood up and gave a two-point sermon. One point was, expect great things from God. Second point, attempt great things for God. It was basically, perhaps, the Lord will work for us in mission endeavor. And we see at the end of the sermon, a gray-headed man, sitting in the pews, said to him, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. Crestfallen, Carrie walked away, 
Then the next day, when the meeting was about to adjourn, Carrie stood up again in a Jonathan-like way and said this, Is there nothing again that we are going to do for India? And a man named Andrew Fuller stood up and said, I'm with you. He was an armor bear. He says, I am behind you. And that armor bear statement, validating Carrie's resolve and plan, turned the tide. Carrie had actually said, you're all acting like the, the ten spies who came back from Canaan and gave a bad report. We were like grasshoppers, they were like giants. But there was a Caleb and a Joshua in the form of Andrew Fuller, who validated and who verified. You see, the upshot was that this perhaps heart carried the day and foreign missions haven't been the same since. That's what sent Carrie to India. I was to India about a year and a half ago. And you should see all of the churches that are present. A dear pastor friend of mine who was my bodyguard in India. He's a, an untouchable in India. He's a Dalit, but he's a mighty man of God. All these conversions of, of hundreds of thousands are traced back to the can-do, perhaps, spirit of William Carey. What about here? What about here in Barbados, on the island here? What's your mindset as a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a daring David, or are you a pessimistic puddleglum? Huh? Who are you? I still remember when in Holland, Michigan, there was a, a wispy woman who had an idea. Let's have a Bible club in one of the public schools. You, can, you can't have a Bible club in the public schools. And you know, I said, geez, let's try it. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. And, and I, I underplayed it. I downplayed it. Ah, what is she going to have there? Maybe a, a, hand, a handful of kids? Well, within a matter of a few months, we have, listen to me. An after-school gathering, a gymnasium with 70, 70 children hearing the Word of God being preached. Even we have a puppet show. It's not worship service. You could do puppet show on a Wednesday afternoon at a public school. But we had, we had armor bears who would be puppet show, puppeteers who were following up the Jonathan-like woman. And God did a great thing. I wonder, as we've had hundreds of children pass through that over the years, I wonder what the last day will show regarding the harvest of this kind of perhaps thinking of this woman in our church. What about you? What about you in this church? Are, are you a pomegranate pessimist sitter? Or you are a daring David Jonathan type doer. I would hope that in this place there would be a real perhaps kind of a mindset. And again, you, you say, well, I'm just a, a person who's not even an officer of the church. I'm just a person who maybe I'm, I'm old and I have diabetes and I'm really weak. Well, if you are a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, your place is a crucial place. Be an armor bearer where you are concerning mission endeavors. But how about another application of this. How about concerning dark circumstances? Dark circumstances. I don't know what's happening in Barbados. I don't know what's going on in the personal lives of you all in this church. I'm sure there are all kinds of stories and heaviness in hearts here that I know nothing about. You may be here in that brown pew sitting under a pomegranate tree right now. 
Maybe you're in a terrible situation. Maybe you've got a very intimidating dilemma that you're facing. You're on an old thorny, and you're facing an old slippery, and you're really vulnerable. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a young man's heart here has been captivated by a seemingly disinterested maiden. What are you going to do with that? How about maybe giving her a call on the phone with a perhaps kind of a mindset? I was once in Manila. It's really hard to make a left-hand turn in Manila. Traffic goes on. No one stops. And the, the man who was there, Steve Hoffmeyer, said this. He said... A faint heart will never make a left-hand turn in Manila, nor will a faint... He was talking to a guy who was interested in a girl. He says, nor will a faint heart ever win a fair maiden. <laughs> and so, men, I, I, the book that was referred to called Manly Dominion, it will not be a pomegranate pessimist, but to be a daring kind of a courageous individual to dare great things to the glory. Maybe you're here. I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're unemployed. Whether you're a young man or a woman or a middle-aged man. How about making that call to a manager on the basis of a perhaps. I was once in uh, St. Simons Beach, Georgia and I was talking with a, with a man who had been fired from his job and there were no opportunities for work. And he became an entrepreneur. He, he was so afraid of failing, but he had this armor bearer. His name was Josh. His armor bearer wife was Autumn. And Autumn was sitting at the table telling me how in the last year, you should see the way that my husband has resolved to get up in the morning, to go off and make cold calls, to find a way to get business. And God has wonderfully supported him and helped him. Now we have the same kind of income that he had in his own entrepreneurial position that he had in his other corporate position. And I knew one of the reasons why Josh had succeeded was because Autumn was his armor bearer. Ladies, a helpmate, what kind of an impact do you have on your husband? Are you a pomegranate pessimist? Or are you instead a, a daring armor bearer alongside your husband? Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Remember Esther? The Persian Jews had a death warrant. And the armor bearer Mordecai came to her and says this. And ladies, again, there's a book called Womanly Dominion too. Ladies, you've got to exercise daring in your kingdom endeavors as well. Mordecai came to Esther and says, who knows, perhaps you have attained royalty for a time such as this. And on that courageous, perhaps, mindset, Esther strode into that slippery throne room, risking her neck, and addressed the king, seeking to get safety for the people of the Jews. Heaney says this, commentator, listen. No matter how dark the circumstances, we are never more than a moment away from God acting on our behalf. Let that instill hope and courage in your darkest hour. The Lord can turn the tables before we can say pomegranate. And our mindset should always be like the leper 
leper thought, can he heal me of leprosy? Lord, if you are willing, you are able. Because the question never, is God able to do it? Always willing. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord will work. He's not restrained to save by many or by few. So consider, maybe your marriage is a war zone. And there's no hope for peace. There's a, there's a man in Holland who just last week got served divorce papers by his wife of 15 years. And the guy was basically told, she's afraid of you. His bags, 15 years the bags were on the front porch. He had to go off and find wherever he could for that night. Devastated. The odds are against it. Perhaps there could be some kind of a restoration. Maybe for you there's some irreparable family relationship breakdown. Think of the prospects of going and climbing up, hands and feet, up old slippery. Well, there could be a boulder that would crush me and I would be devastated in the valley below. Okay, there's risk, isn't there? There's often risk involved in some of our endeavors. Go ahead, maybe make yourself vulnerable. Venture out on a perhaps. So that's concerning dark circumstances. Have that mindset. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. He's not restrained to save by many or by few. Or or how about this one? Concerning personal evangelism. Some people seem lost beyond saving. You know what I mean? Oh, that person I work with. He's so disinterested. She's so hardened. They're so antagonistic. Well, that's okay. Because Ephesians 2.1 says that men... Women, unbelievers, they're, they're, they're dead in transgressions and sin. Does the Lord need their help to save them? Is somehow their hardness an obstacle that God can't break? Oh, no, not at all. Salvation is all of God. He says this, the Lord doesn't need them to help him. He doesn't need them to be defeated favorably disposed toward him it's it's when they're dead in sins that he makes them alive it's when they're in a far country that god can bring them to their senses who is it in your life that you say oh that person is unsavable oh that 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 daughter of that man she's in such a far country in impurity god is able keep praying keep keep witnessing Saul of Tarsus was ravaging against the church on the Damascus Road. Was he unsavable? If ever there was an unsavable focus, it was the Apostle Paul. Or the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Their hands still were bloodied, not yet dried with the blood of Christ on the cross. Romans 5, 6 says, At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. And so, don't stop praying. Don't stop witnessing, even for the most unlikely of sinners. Because one commentator says this, listen, he says this, there are no easy saves. Think about you. You you think you were an easy save. The hardness of your heart, the depth of my rebellion, God reached down low and He saved me. A rebel out of the depths, as Newton would say. God drew me. 
And so, we consider this idea of even, what about your soul here? Think of your, your soul here. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know who's saved and who's not saved. I'd be really naive to think in a crowd this size that everybody's saved. No, I don't think so. Maybe there, there's, there's someone sitting here who maybe has heard the Word of God and have been planted in your soil and your soil has been watered but you've been nothing more than like watering a dead stick. And there's been no response to the Gospel. Maybe you, maybe everybody thinks you're saved but you have the suspicion in your own soul that you're not saved. Maybe you even think you've You've committed an unpardonable sin by your hardness of heart. All I'm saying is, listen, this is the day of salvation. Right now, when you breathe your last, it's done. There's no perhaps. But now there is a perhaps. Even think of that thief on the cross. He began the day mocking Jesus. One man recently said he had shouted his throat hoarse in contempt for Jesus. But now with the gravelly voice he still had left, he turned to him at the 11th hour and said, would you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And I would just say to you, you may think you have sinned beyond grace. You may be like Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, you whisper. But all of those voices say, shut up. Don't bother the teacher you're a barking dog. You've gone back to the vomit of your sin so many times. He's not going to listen to you. But what did Bartimaeus do when they shouted him down? That he shouted out all the more, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I'm going to give you a secret about my spiritual life. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a Christian. Sometimes I struggle with my own sense of assurance. Assurance is kind of like a glass of water. Sometimes it's bubbling over with full assurance. And sometimes it's down to even just an inch deep. Sometimes I'm at an inch deep. And I have the enemy who is accuser of the brethren telling me you're just a barking dog. You've gone back to your sins so many times. He won't hear you. You know what my resolve is? I made a Bartimaeus. I'm going to keep shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Until my last breath. I don't even care if on Judgment Day the angels have grabbed me and I fear that they've grabbed me to heave hold me into hell. I'm still going to shout out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And my Bible says in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus stopped for such urgent faith expressed in Jesus and of David and mercy on me. That's going to be my plea to my dying day regardless of what I feel. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock. Not my feelings, not even my sense of assurance. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. You sit in your pew, just trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. If it's the first time, or the 10,000th and first time, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's go to the table with that thought, huh? Once again, the table is being offered up. There is bread to the hungry. There is drink to the thirsty. Believe. I don't care if it's the first time, the 10,000 the first time. Listen to me. Believe in the Lord. Even while others are drinking and eating and you're not, maybe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps. He's not restrained to save by many 
nor by few. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved.